Zach, I'm feeling good right now. Tell me why. So... Are you familiar with College Pick'em? I am. It's a form of fantasy football where you can essentially try and predict the outcomes of college football games. Okay. And I am a resident at Watermark Church in right. Dallas, and I'm on the students team. Mm. Specifically, I work with junior high, which is also middle school, which is also sixth or eighth grade. There's a lot of things to call in these Yes, yeah, little guys, munchkins, <laughs> all of them. That was offensive. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but... With that, I'm on the students team, which also includes college, high school, and middle school. And so between all the college team, we're playing college pick'em. Okay. And put a little wager on it. Tell us about the wager. So there is probably 30 of us total in this um, group, maybe a little less. 30 seems a little high, as I say. But And the, the ultimate loser mm. is just experiencing an eight-hour punishment. Oh, for, yeah. Eight, eight hour of almost anything is brutal. Yeah. And so are you familiar, are you familiar with the musical Cats? Mm, James Gordon. I'm familiar. Yes. So the loser or the ultimate loser has to watch the movie Cats back to back four times oh, straight. So that's a full eight hours. Full eight hours. That's a full and, work day. And so much. Yeah. So much so that if they like they can't have their phone with them, mm. if they go to the bathroom, they have to pause the movie oh. like they like. Wait. Can't have their phone? No. So they are solely they locked are, in. They have to be un- entertained cats. by nothing more than no. the musical Cats four times in a row. Have you seen it? I've never seen it. I intentionally. Me too. Yeah. I've heard that it was awful. Yeah. Like just so terrible. That's I've only heard bad things Me personally. Too. And I feel like oh. this punishment is goes to show that it's probably <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> used for this. They didn't use Remember the Titans for a reason. That's, say that. that's right. Yeah. That's right. Or Braveheart or right. other epic movies. <laughs> well, also Braveheart's like 40 hours long by itself. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what the ultimate loser. Then Goodness. the next four lowest, so fifth, and like fifth from last all the way down. Right. They have to join them for one and monitor. So they also have to watch Cats, but it's only one time. Oh, so like one will be at the first showing, right, the right. second showing, the matinee, the, yeah, the third. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The evening show. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so that is the punishment. That's a that's a really good punishment. Really I've heard good. of great punishments like tattoos, taking the ACT, yeah. stand-up comedy. Yeah, Watermark has some good— I mean, good stuff. The, they, they punish with the best of them. They do, with grace as well. All right. Tell right. us in this college pick'em league, how are you doing? Are you going to watch Cats? So, believe it or not, Zach, I'm not going to watch Cats. So we have, we have one more week, so I'd hate to claim anything too early. And I'll also preface with saying Cooper's sports knowledge is vast. I Well, by vast, you mean not vast, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I guess shallow. I'll never forget one of Cooper's classic jokes is when he walks into a room where someone's watching sports, and he makes a joke with the most serious face that has nothing to do with the sport. Right. So, so an example, for example, yeah, yeah, I've yeah, got yeah. one in my mind. Great. We're watching the World Series one year. Yep. And we're in college. Cooper walks in the room, kind of stands there as he does, stares at the TV for a moment, and then just makes this comment without announcing to the room. He just says, hmm, Tom Brady's having a pretty great rookie year, isn't he? And we all just look at him. And he holds the face. I'm, I'm a holder, Zach. <laughs> I can hold with the best like, of them. You've got to be kidding me. And then he breaks finally and laughs. But that's just – that's Cooper's sports I- I exposure. And that's obviously – that's obviously a joke, Right. That's folks. a joke, yes. But, but but in this college pick'em game, I just want to go on record and say I have watched zero minutes of college football this entire season. Yeah. Zero – like zero minutes. And so you would expect like maybe 
slightly below middle of the pack. You know, we'll say you're in the league because you have to be. Exactly. You wouldn't choose to be in this. Right. League. Right. Yeah. Like I'm. I'm in it for That's all. That's not bad. All That's good nothing against you. I literally named myself the underdog in, in this in this league. <laughs> nice. I just I knew where I stood. And as we've progressed, I've slowly climbed the hill of impossibility. You've emerged. I have emerged, and I'm currently sitting top of the pack. So you, the underdog, is number one in I'm, your league. I'm currently number one. I am ninety. I'm in the ninety nine point eight percentile. I'm wow. I'm ranked three hundred and eleventh in the entire world. You're kidding? Me. No, I'm not. Kidding Are you, you serious? Yes. How many people do college pick them? I don't. I mean, thousands of people. Yeah. Like I'm. I'm three hundred and eleven. But also look at it. How many other people are ninety nine point eight? Yeah, I don't. I don't know so how. So you to, actually could be like two fifty, but right. they're all like three point. Or right. Exactly. Whatever. Like how many are tied for three hundred eleventh yeah. or whatever? Dang. I don't know. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing shockingly well. Talk us through your strategy. Um, so I don't want to say I haven't won yet. Like there's still one right, more right, week, right, right. and I'll make sure to update you. We're guys knocking next week. on wood. Right, yes. right. Come in. Oh, it was you. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, but my strategy is this: I look at who is predicted to win. Okay. Um, and then if it's like a landslide, I just pick them. I'm like, I trust the. Of course. I trust the people. Mm-hmm. If it's close, I'll look to see who the home team is, and I'll I'll usually pick the home team. Huh. Pretty straightforward. Home court advantage, man. I just feel like I feel like it's an undervalued asset. I wonder if you know in uh, March Madness they have years where it's like the Cinderella story is taken. The 16 seed beats the one seed, and mm-hmm. no one predicted it. Right. But I wonder if we're just having a basic college football year. Well, I think part of it is like some of the games are being postponed or canceled from COVID, and so it's affecting what's being used. I guess anyway. But just so you guys know, for right now, I have 64. Points like completed picks. So is that sixty four correct choices? Yeah, sixty four correct choices out of the past weeks. The out lowest of- person are in our league, also named Cooper. Actually, oh, shout out Cooper Wagner. Oh, Sorry, tough. buddy. He uh, <laughs> he has forty points. Hmm. So he also missed the first two weeks Bummer. and just decided not to sign up. Dang, that's Which tough. Is- I will say. Wh- so how many have you missed? Does it say? Um, I don't know. There's uh, there was I average eight correct picks a week it's out of good. ten. That's, that's my good. average. There was one week I got three, which was just not your best. Not my best. It, what happened was I forgot to do it until midday Saturday. So like half oh. the games were already done. I just got on my phone and randomly. Picked. I didn't get to do my method. Gotcha. I was literally at work at Lululemon. You know I'm your favorite Lululemon. Yeah, <laughs> all of ours. <laughs> right. Goodness. Well, so the prospects of you watching cats are slim. I mean, I would say it's and, and I think. You, any st- strategist would say it's an impossibility. And it, what? I can't lose. Like, I, I, there's not enough points for me to lose to, to be put in the bottom. Well, uh, mark his words. Right Let's now. remember these words while he's watching cats in a few no, weeks. I won't be watching <laughs> cats, Zach. I'm confident. But if I win every meeting from now until the end of the year, I get a snack and drink of my choice waiting for me on my chair. That's wow. if, if, if I win. I didn't know there was an incentive to yeah, win. Yeah. I just so, thought there was an incentive not to all lose. All I'm saying is our meeting's at around 10 o'clock, so honey butter chicken biscuit from Whataburger might be sitting on my chair. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper, the 99 percentile of point eight of the world McCullough. That's right. How we doing, Coop? Uh, all I'm saying is listening to our intro. I mean, learn from my successes, folks. <laughs> learn from the successes. And learn from Cooper Wagner's me. mistakes. Yeah, and learn will. from Yeah, and learn from Coop's mistakes. I love well, Cooper, we're very proud of you. Thank me, you, man. Monica, our whole team here. We're very, I mean, I know. She actually she 
I saw, I wasn't supposed to see, but she was wrapping me a little gift. <laughs> Monica, just uh, hide that. I know, I know. Gosh, I hate she's you. Such a, she's just a sweetheart. Well, uh, Cooper, you are very easy to celebrate, and we could do that this whole episode, but we do have an interview. On. We yeah, have enough, <laughs> enough about me, Zach. We do have Let's an interview we need to get to. And let me guess. It's, it's my favorite. favorite. I knew it. Every week I say the same, but it's true every week. And I think if you listen to all of them, you would agree. This week is John Kufos. Now, let me let, let me read his title straight out of LinkedIn. Oh, He's sponsor? The, that would be cool. Hey, folks, if you work at LinkedIn, <laughs> let's just pause. Give us a give us a little shout Hit us up. Anyway, John Kufos is the national director of reentry initiatives at Right on Crime with the Texas Public Public Policy Foundation here in Austin, Texas, but he lives in DC. And so what he does with the uh, with the foundation is working on reentry programs for people who are going through the cycle of being in prison, whether it's for drugs or other related crimes. And so what he talks about in here is the cycle that happens uh, that you see happen in a lot of these neighborhoods. Somebody will get in trouble because they don't have the opportunity in their neighborhood. They'll go to jail and then there there's not any opportunity there, so they come back on the streets worse off than right, they were. It's a cycle. And it's a cycle back and right. forth. And his goal is to break that cycle. What can we do to get people out of that cycle and making in these communities, making opportunities to build economic growth and develop in these places? Yeah. And, and it comes from his story. And that's his story. He, he had an amazing career being an attorney and wound up, wound up in prison for a while. And, wow. and you'll have to listen to him tell it to find out why and how and, and what took place there that really changed his life and grabbed his heart for why he wants to do what he's doing now. But it's a fascinating story. And it's a fascinating way for us to find out what we can do to get involved in this and and be able to help someone who is hurting and help someone in a a community that is less fortunate because there are things we can do. One, as the church, as the people of Christ, we can reach out to people who need help and and lift them to know Jesus and to to work hard. Yeah, Uh, I I think that's an awesome thing that he's doing, man. I've I've heard a lot about this as well. Like, obviously, I I don't have experience um, of that, but... And I've heard that the most likely person to go to prison is someone who's already been to prison. Like right. it's it's a very high um, re-enrollment rate, I guess you could say. And so I think that's, I mean, it's super exciting that he's right. willing to kind of go to an area that seems like is, I guess, less glamorous. Not a lot of people are probably talking about mm. the benefits of reforming the prison system and things like that. But hey, it's it's. I mean, people that are in prison are, are just that. They're still people. And right. so I think they should be treated like that. And we're all created in the image of God, you know? And so they're still just as valuable in prison as they are um, people that haven't gone to prison. And there's one thing you can say, there's systemic issues, there are problems, and there's another thing to get out and do something that's about That's right, and that's what we need to be about. And that's what we need to be, people who do stuff about the issues that we see, not just talk about it and complain about it. And that's what John's doing, and that's why we have him on, that's why we're learning from him. So learn how to get involved, listen to John. Without any further ado, here he is, John Kufos. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us. And let me ask you some questions today. First of all, I want you to introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you? And, and what do you do with Right on Crime? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is John Kufos. I am the National Director of Reentry Initiatives at Right on Crime, uh, which is based in Austin, Texas. I, however, am assigned to our D.C. office, uh, which is across the street from the Capitol. Um, what I do, I've, I wear a number of, of hats around reentry. And when we talk about reentry, I think that you know, before criminal justice, the only time anyone ever heard the word reentry was in the space program, right? right, <laughs> like right. When it was, but you know, the uh, the parallels are are not lost on it. I was about to say it could be very similar to reentry into the into our galaxy, if you will. It can, our well, 
well said because while you're in prison you're out in the middle of nowhere you're out in space uh, disconnected and uh and if you don't plan properly you are going to burn up when you try to come back in <laughs> um you know what i try what i do is i work on policy state and federal policy uh surrounding uh reentry but really from this from the standpoint like everyone at right on crime from a public safety perspective right we believe that uh as i think all americans do you know, the, the purpose of the criminal justice system and of government is to make us safe, right? But at the same time, you also have to do that in the smartest way possible, respecting the, the many freedoms this country gives us. Right. So, uh, so, you know, you can't have public safety in the sense of throwing everyone, you know, to the gulag, right? Um, so uh, one of the big projects I work on is something called Safe Streets and Second Chances. And what that is, it's a partnership between Right on Crime uh, Florida State University, uh, Coke Industries, and the Stand Together uh, net Network. And what that is, is that you have researchers in about seven, uh, seven states, about 90 prisons, conducting uh, academic research and then reporting out some of the policy and operational barriers that people are seeing uh, in real time. And then our policy team goes to work on that. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating work. And especially with the rhetoric that we have right now, the, even just the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think a lot of the criminal justice system has to, to play into that as well. So first, I want you to just tell your story as well with the criminal justice system, where you started, and then how you got to where you are now working with reentry. Sure, sure. You know, I never thought I'd, I'd be working, I'd be, you know, in this space. Um, and uh, I'm very fortunate to be here. Uh, so for my professional career, I went to uh, law school in New York City. I'm from New Jersey uh, originally. Uh, went to law school in New York City um, and uh, was a criminal trial attorney. Uh, had my own firm, you know, people worked for, you know, people working for me, all the trappings of success. Uh, handling, you know, a lot of murder cases, handling racketeering cases, very serious crimes. Right. Um, but I was a completely functional alcoholic. And in 2011, uh, I was driving drunk as I as I do so many as I did so many times right. uh, when I was an alcohol uh, active alcoholism, and uh, only this time I hit somebody and tried to lie my way out of it. And uh, you know, I cleared up a couple days later and, and turned myself in and, right. uh, and 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 would end up going to prison. And the interesting thing in that situation is that. Uh, you know, I, 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 I say this all the time. It's it, 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 it very ironic and probably very weird for your listeners and, and, and viewers to see. But, you know, the best things that ever happened in my life happened when I was a, well, a felon, returning citizen, person with a criminal record, whatever you want to call us. Right. Um, I, would, uh, I would plead guilty at my first court appearance. Um, I want, you know, and I, I was more focused on my sobriety than long trials or anything like that. Uh, I would argue my last case in 2012 uh, in New Jersey, it was actually before the New Jersey Supreme Court, uh, a search and seizure case. I was the only attorney in the history of New Jersey to ever argue and then win a, 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 a case before the Supreme Court without on bail. So I don't, I don't know if that's a distinction or not, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's like Barry Bonds' is asterisk, I guess. Um, yeah, that's great. However, however they want to put that. Um, but uh, after that case, I would... I would uh, go to prison a few months later in May, uh, sentenced to six years in New Jersey state prison, not a federal prison or anything like that. Not, not that 
again, you know, some people think federal prisons are, you know, like uh, country clubs. That's not true. Uh, federal <laughs> prisons are very harsh. Where I was, was, you know, one of New Jersey's prisons. And those were very, very old. And mm. uh, despite New Jersey's progressive reputation, uh, that, that never made its way to the, to, the, to the prison system. I can tell you that. Right. Um, housed at a place called Bayside State Prison. I was sentenced to six years. Um, this was uh, a place that my clients were afraid to go to. Remember, my clients, many of them, you know, had been in trouble more than once. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, no real treatment there, you know, I, and, and I got to see sort of why the revolving door was um, and, and some of the real, real issues behind that. And, and there's a lot of issues in that prison. There was racist racism issues which ironically hurt me um right. personally because i i was a defense lawyer so they assumed that i only represented people of color which is not true um but i was also uh, uh one of the naacp's pro bono lawyers for central jersey which mm. apparently a lot of correctional officers the wrong way um so where i was locked up was was uh, a very very difficult place um you know uh but, you know, what, what hit me was um, I would watch people go out to the halfway house and go out to, the, to their parole and such, and then they'd come right back. And you'd ask why, you know, within a matter of weeks or months, and you'd ask why and say, and they'd say, oh, well, you know, I couldn't get a job, but I couldn't get a job because I didn't have an ID and I had this old warrant, I had this old ticket and things like that. And it was really a, a crazy situation. And, and when I, 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 in my head, I'm like, this has to be really easy to fix but never knew I'd be the one to try to fix it. Right. One thing, one thing I will tell you when I was in prison, you know, nobody asked me for money or almost nobody asked me for money, but almost everybody asked me for a job. Right. Mm. And you know, when you, when you're locked in a cell with, I mean, I had upwards of four cellmates. It's in, depending on the cell I was in three right. cellmates in the cell I was in, you know, you learn a lot about another person. And you know, these people would tell you, look, I just want to reunite with my family. I want to, provide for my daughter, my son, et cetera. They wanted jobs. And that's what they always asked me for. As if I could do anything at that point, I was sitting with them. Um, you know, <laughs> but you were going to be the guy one day, I guess. Right. So, and I think that's really a sad commentary on the neighborhoods they're returning to. Right. So if you're, if the best, if your best option is to ask a cellmate to hook you up with a job, that must mean you're not very confident in the supports in the community. Hmm. So, um, and after 17 months, I was paroled, which was a shock to me. Right. Um, I didn't think I was going to make parole. And uh, I, I had no home. I had to move to a law school roommate. Um, you know, I was going through bankruptcy, disbarred, you know, it was, it, and, and any number of issues, which I, you know, I caused. I'm not putting that on anyone else. I'm not asking your viewers to, to feel bad for me. I'm just giving the operational reality of what was going on. Mm. So... I knew I wanted to help, um, but I knew I didn't have a law license any longer, so I couldn't do my NAACP work, which is what I really enjoyed doing when I was practicing law in the private sector. Right. So um, I remembered those guys who were sent to prison, uh, excuse me, who would go out to parole the halfway house. And, you know, they'd come back with, uh, you know, they'd come back, uh, like I said, because they couldn't pay a fine, they did an old warrant, they couldn't get a job. So I read about former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy, who was doing some great reentry uh, policy and programs in, uh, in the northern part of the state. 
and I had a chance meeting with him and uh, Jim and I got to talking and all I really wanted to do, Zach, was I just wanted to get my old lawyer buddies together to clear up driver's licenses, fines and fees. I don't believe you should ever criminalize poverty. And I don't believe that that helps public safety, right? We want our police officers chasing people who commit crimes, not to be bill collectors. And I think that anybody on any side of the spectrum or everyone on, on any side of the spectrum, I've said that to agrees with me. That's something we can um, agree on. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and that doesn't mean you shirk your responsibilities to the court, but it means that police intervention is, uh, and warrants and such and further driver's license suspensions are probably not the way to go. Totally. Uh, in Jersey, we'd call that throwing bad money at good money. Um, so, so in any event, um, Jim and I, uh, Governor McGreevy and I started talking I put together a bunch of lawyers. I would create, uh, at the time, the largest driver's license restoration program for people coming out of prison. Think of like, uh, I used to call it the poor man's Uber for lawyers. I took a, yeah, I took a cloud, yeah, I took a cloud-based case management system, connected 70 pro bono lawyers to it. Uh, and if you, no matter what county in New Jersey you were in, if you were a returning citizen who had a, a driver's license or a, a warrant issue, we had a lawyer for you. And we cleared up over 400 driver's licenses in that. Along the way, collateral to that, uh, concurrent to that, I would help uh, Governor McGreevy uh, execute his vision that he had after conversations with Governor Christie at the time. They wanted to build a statewide reentry program, right, uh, that worked more on, on actual services and, say, policy. Um, so in this program, uh, you know, there was a lot of logistics that had to be worked out. Where, who, how much money would it take to do, et cetera. Right. We ended up building uh, nine locations in eight counties in New Jersey. Uh, we ended up uh, helping thousands, thousands of clients. And these guys were getting real jobs. I mean, yeah. not just, uh, you know, not just something small day labor and jobs. These guys were going to trade unions. They were doing all these different things. We had a great, great team. Uh, we had a board of directors, by the way, five former New Jersey governors were on that board. So we wow. had a very heavy, heavy hitting board could cut a lot of red tape in a state with a lot of red tape. No, uh, and, uh, and then from there, uh, after three years, I was the executive director, Jim, uh, governor McGree was our chairman. Uh, I was asked to come down to write on crime, had a great conversation with the team over there to switch gears a little bit to take what I learned from trying cases, being in prison doing programs, but then trying to work on reentry policy with that. And that's how I got to DC right on crime. It was December of 17, almost three years ago. In fact, right around this time in 17, we were talking. Well, happy uh, work anniversary, if you will, here at Right on. Thank you. That's, that's amazing. I love the work that you're doing because I think that is so important. And you mentioned something in there, the, the revolving door. You would see people go back out to these communities where they're asking one of their cellmates if they can help them get a job because the confidence was low in the communities they were reentering to. So they would end up right back in where they were. And it's that revolving door cycle that is so hard to get out of. But recently, President Trump enacted the First Step Act. And I know you're a big part part of that. So if you want to go ahead and explain what that is and how that can help with this revolving door. Sure, sure. So, you know, when I when I, just to pick up where I left off, so I have the conversation with the Right on Crime team, including Kevin Roberts, uh, you know, yeah. was one of the ones I spoke with. And, uh, you know, it was a tremendous opportunity to, to, to join, you know, what I consider one of the best criminal justice policy teams in the country. Right. Uh, and make real and lasting change. So I had done a lot of great things in New Jersey, 
but I hadn't done much outside of New Jersey at that point. I mean, some of our policies, you know, other states might have worked on, but never on the scale and scope or with the policy uh, folks like we have at TPPF. Um, so I get a call, my first day, my first official day was the 17th of December, actually, um, in, in 17. But earlier in the month as of December, I got a call and, they, and our CEO at the time was Brooke Rollins. And there was going to be a meeting at the White House. And they said, hey, can you come? I know you're not working with us yet, but can you come down? I said, sure. So I took a sick day from New Jersey, took the yeah. train down. Of and, course, uh, you're going to the White House. Are you kidding? Sure. Yeah. And you know, I didn't know who was going to be there. Right. And uh, it turned to be a, a great meeting. A lot of folks from TPPF there, a lot of other great advocates. Jared Kushner was there, um, some other senior White House staff. And we started talking about what second chances look like across different, what we'll call threads, right? What does a second chance look like if you have an addiction? What does a second chance look like for workforce? What does it look like in prison, right? And how do you fuse all these things? Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, that prior to, you know, the, the what, what hadn't happened before or, or what had happened for years in many of our communities is many of these people never got a first chance. Right. Um, you know, they just never got a first chance and they come from certain backgrounds. It's interesting because I fit some of that statistic as well. Grew up in poverty, father in and out of federal prison, mother, a teenage mom and all the drama that comes with that. In fact, when my father escaped from uh, federal custody, I was dragged around the country for years. But um, so there is a cycle there. And this administration, like other administrations, realized that. But this administration really took to doing something about it. Yeah. So the first step back. Um, uh, became sort of the rallying cry for both the right and the left, right? No matter what was going on in this country, no matter how many, how much infighting there was between Republicans and Democrats, there was always a, almost a safe space of, pol of pure policy, which is criminal justice. So it began actually as the Corrections Act. A lot of people don't know that. Um, hmm. John Corn, Senator Cornyn. Yeah, um, come on, Texas. Yeah, Sure, sure. And, and what a great senator he is. Yeah. Um, you know, Senator Cornyn has been fantastic on this and so many issues, but Senator Cornyn had proposed a prison reform bill called the Corrections Act. And the idea was to fix some of the glaring holes, uh, in, glaring fairness holes, we'll say, um, in, the, in the prison system. Mm. As w advocates and people in the government started learning that there was a greater appetite for this, it took on a life of its own, which was which is really exciting, Zach. So I'm old. I'm in my 40s. I'm old enough to remember when everyone just wanted to be tough on crime. It was a race right. to be tougher. The bill now we're years. Yeah, now that. we're see, we're seeing a race to be smarter on crime. So the first step act was really a, the the first vehicle for that. Um, the White House was all behind it. Uh, President Trump was 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 behind it. What it did was it became the First Step Act, which had not just prison reform, but sentencing reform as well. Mm -hmm. So now some of the disparate sentences involving crack cocaine penalties could be remedied. If you uh, were, tr were terminally ill or, or otherwise not going to recover and you fit certain criteria, you now could apply for compassionate release on a much broader scale, right? Because why should we keep you there to sit right. on dialysis or something like that? Um, it, it alleviated penalties like stacking. What stacking was, or what stacking is, is let's assume you have a charge of possession with CDS with intent to distribute, and then you have a gun during that, and then obviously you possess the CDS by itself, which is a separate charge. Right. What they could do is they would just take 
all happened on the same day. They would just add them up. So it would be, you know, 20 plus 20 plus 20. And you see people get, you know, 60 years, 50 years as first offenses. Um, first Step Act helped close a lot of that. Um, and really the legacy of the First Step Act, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I don't think anyone expected it to become so big and yeah. such a wonderful situation. I mean, TPPF was really the driver behind that. So much of that follows the Texas model of criminal justice, by the way. Um, but I remember uh, December 21st, I think it was, 2018, I'm in the Oval Office uh, uh, while it's being signed and, uh, you know, got to speak with the president on that occasion. And, uh, you know, what I could, I thought that was going to be the biggest thing to happen. Right. But the thing is, the real legacy of the First Step Act, Zach, a lot of people I haven't talked about yet. Maybe they will after this, you know, current election situation is fully resolved. I hope and, so. Uh, and we move on. Um, but what the First Step Act did was it gave motivation to states to do criminal justice reform that weren't doing it before, mm. right? So Texas was always a leader in criminal justice reform right. amongst conservative states, right? And a lot of states would follow the Texas model under the very basic political calculation. If you're in state, a conservative state, and I come and say, hey, in New Jersey, we did something. No one cares because it's New Jersey. Right? Right. And you say, well, Texas, which certainly is not soft on crime and does not have that reputation, also did this or did something better. Um, and then it gave political impetus to those states. Say, okay, we'd like to do something like that. Hmm. What, Donald, what President Trump did was really take that to the next level. Because if you weren't a politician, if you were a politician who could suffer from criminal justice reform in your state or district, and Donald Trump said it's okay, well, now you have political cover from the president. Right. So we started to see, we may, I mean, in 18 and 19, back-to-back -back laws were passed in Mississippi to bring fairness to the criminal justice system. With Governor Bryant, who's a great, great governor out there, or was a great governor out there, but he turned yeah. out. Governor Bryant, you know, was a police officer before he was in politics. This is a person who, you know, his job was enforcing law yeah. uh, on the street level. Not, as a, not, you know, not like someone removed. He was actually right. putting handcuffs on people and bringing them to the county jail uh, in the narcotics team and such. And mm. it was President Trump convening state leaders at the White House to talk about this issue. Jared Kushner doing that and many of the members of the senior team doing that. And I think as we look back at some of the legacies of this administration and the, the ripple effect outwards, um, criminal justice reform is a big one. Right. And, and, and we're going to see now, you know, when, uh, you know, assuming that, the, that uh, everything goes as predicted with Joe Biden uh, becoming the, the, the vice president, becoming the president, right. assuming that occurs, which, you know, smart money's on the fact that it will, um, the, It'll be interesting to see who is that force that can bring bipartisanship on this issue and who and do we still need someone to provide that political cover in more tough on crime states and districts. And I think that's where if we move things, it's because the Trump administration laid the foundation for that.
Yeah, which I think is so overlooked and people aren't talking about, especially leading up to the election. No one was talking about the First Step Act and no one was even really talking about the Abraham Accords, uh, the Israeli um, partnerships as well. And I think it's something that is so important yet so overlooked. So thank you for your your leadership on that and, and the bipartisanship and the, the partnerships that it took to make it happen. But I think another partnership that's really important leading to the, fu- to the future is the private and public sector. If we can communicate between the government making these first step acts and putting this this uh, legislation into into motion but then we have to get the business leaders involved to give these people the second chance in, in hiring so what would you say to business leaders as they are hearing this or as they are looking at at these laws or th- these acts that are being put out saying i need to give people a second chance what would your message be to them oh well you know that's such a good question and you know the me- the direct message is you know all the research shows that there's there's no appreciable risk to hiring, right? That's the first part. Um, and because everybody starts with, okay, is this going to disrupt my business in any way, right? So I always start with that part. The next thing to realize is that, you know, companies around the country are doing this. Uh, Coke Industries, right? A uh, big, big corporation is doing this. Um, you have other companies that tout it. Uh, Dave's Killer Bread. Dave's Killer Bread, some of the best bread. I'm not just saying that because they hire people with criminal right. records. <laughs> Dave's Killer Bread's got great bread. I mean, if you're not going to go to a, a handmade bakery somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, if you're going to get bread, Dave's Killer Bread's where it's at. It's almost all returning citizens working there. Mm. Uh, there's a great manufacturing company. I had the privilege of touring in Cincinnati, Nehemiah Manufacturing. Uh, another 85% returning citizen. And highly profitable business. And the reason they're highly profitable is because you have to understand that, you know, if, if you've never been given a chance, right, or maybe you were in addiction or maybe you had other things going on in your life, so you weren't able to receive the chance that was given. Let's assume someone gave you a chance at some point and you just were not there yet, right? Because you were right. on drugs, you were drinking too much, whatever you were doing. After the experience of criminal justice system involvement, knowing that you're always marked, uh, as a felon, and I use that word only because people in the country use that word, right. um, you get an incredibly loyal workforce, an incredibly loyal workforce, a, a workforce that's excited about your company. Um, and, you know, you know, people sometimes ask me, I, I, was, at a, I was at the University of Texas in Austin uh, doing a, a, media, uh, a, a media panel. Right. And, um, and someone asked me once, said, well, you know, what's the most surprising thing about uh, you know, being in the criminal justice system? And I said, well, for me, no matter what I do, no matter what I did, meaning before my crime, no matter what I do after my crime, I am always a felon. Always. It's never, that is never going to change. Right. Um, and even if New Jersey has very good expungement laws, which other states should follow candidly, even when my record gets expunged, uh, you know, Google and those things will always have me as a felon. So you can never escape it. Everything you do from that day forward will run through that. Mm-hmm. That will mean, here's some examples. I couldn't even get uh, on, my, on our apartment with my, my wife, which was my fiance at the time, um, because I had a criminal record. We had to get the apartment in her name. I couldn't get 
life insurance when I had my daughter because I had been to prison. And fortunately, I knew somebody who was able to get me an override. But like, Goodness. that's only because I knew people can get me an override, right? right? Like, that's not a common thing. So when you think about what business leaders don't know is that, and they shouldn't know this because they'd have to go to prison to learn it, um, <laughs> is that um, the amount of stress that a job can relieve for a person who has a criminal record makes it so they never want to lose that job. Mm-hmm. They are, they are going to be your biggest cheerleader, your biggest advocate, um, and will work day and night. I mean, fr- frankly, I'm up floors for 30 cents an hour, or whatever, three bucks a day in, in New Jersey, you know? Yeah. So, so no job is below me. Um, and I think the other thing is if, if you want to, if you understand you, you suffer no harm from hiring uh, people with criminal records, and there could be, and there probably is a great benefit to doing so, in addition to, by the way, the governmental benefits, you can get OJT dollars for it, you get tax credits, you can get bonding, like just other programs for a business to do that. You help make communities better and safer by giving the same job you would give anyone else anyway, right? right? Except in this situation, you're bringing home a mother, a father and a daughter or a father and a son. You're helping someone pay child support to support a child that will grow up better. And, you know, I, I, see, I saw this thing online once where it said, you know, shop local because when you shop local, you know, you're helping uh, that owner, you know, put his kid through college or, or sponsor yeah. a little league team as opposed to Walmart. So as the CEO can get a third boat or something like that. Right. right? right. And obviously I love Walmart. I go there all the time. Oh, so that's great. I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, but, but the, the premise is the same. If you want to do something where you can make a difference, uh, giving folks a job is the way to go. And I'm going to add one thing to that. Right now, um, since George Floyd's killing, uh, there's been a, 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 a lot of conversation about uh, some of the racial inequities in this country, right? And one of the ones that kept coming up, in addition to obvious police citizen interactions, is how come we don't have people of color uh, why aren't they, why are people of color not hired as much as, as others? Right. And the interesting thing is that if you're a business that is interested in that particular racial issue and you exclude people with criminal records, just by the numbers, since so many more people in most communities of color are convicted of crimes than, than non, uh, than, than white folks, you're going to have that disparity. And I think there's actually a great article called The Invisible Job Seeker. And uh, it's from 2013 before all this happened. It talks about that very issue. So I think that there's a number of benefits to it. But I I always start with the bottom line. And the bottom line is that if you told me that I can get a worker that's going to be loyal, that's going to care about my company, that wants to move up in the company, and uh, and, and that is genuinely thankful and has gratitude to be here, I think returning citizens is a place to be. Yeah, I love that. And I think we really do need to start looking at it from a jobs perspective and an economic perspective as well, because whenever you do give someone that second chance, and I'm a huge fan of the second chance hiring, because I do believe in the, I serve a God who's a God of second chances. And, and we've been given that, so we get to give that to others as well. But 
and just thinking about the lives that can change and how you can put a cog in the, in the revolving door and stop that door uh, from people keeping going back into these, these communities where there is no hope, there is no opportunity. But now giving them a job gives them hope and gives them, uh, gives them dignity and it gives them purpose where they're at. And I think it's so important. So thank you for what you're doing. And I think just speaking to these business leaders, look like look beyond the the felony look beyond the uh look at the heart look at what people are doing and willing to do to get back into the workforce to put their child through school to pay the child support to uh to build a better life for a happier day and so i love what you're doing thank you so much for doing this i want to ask you one more question as we land uh, just as we always do with all our leaders what advice would you give to your 20 year old self looking back what would you tell young john yeah. i mean you know, I, I'd like to recount all of my mistakes, but we'd be on like seven podcasts for that one. Um, but I do, before I hit that, I want to pick up on one other point, though, when we talk yeah. about business hiring, just to just to close that loop when I should have mentioned it. The business sector can't be expected to take this on by themselves. Right. Um, and it's incumbent upon our departments of corrections, our parole agencies and our states in particular to make sure that programming happens in prison, that there's necessary reentry services. So that way the business can be comfortable in knowing that the support system exists for these people, right? That's critical. In New Jersey, one of the things we did was we, can, uh, we asked Governor Christie to convene the 50 biggest businesses in New Jersey to hear about what reentry services we had in the state um, and, motivate that and, and, and motivate them and also make them comfortable with hiring our population. Mm-hmm. So it, it's incumbent upon the states to do that, to make sure that that exists. So what would I tell my 20-year-old self? I mean, the first, probably don't go to law school, right? Um, <laughs> but what a, what a, no, I'm kidding. I had a great yeah, time. I understand. Um, but, and don't drink and drive, obviously. Well. Um, but I think what I, would, what I would tell my 20-year-old self is uh, make sure that what you're doing is something that matters to someone other than you, mm. right? And I tried to live that when I practiced law with a lot of my pro bono work. But when, you know, I was in my 20s and early 30s when I was doing that and, uh, you know, I had, I was overly focused on myself, right? I had bills, I had debt, I was drinking, I had other, a lot of things happening and I didn't take enough time to step back. Now, when I was 20, at the same time I was in college, um, I was in this race against a clock that that didn't exist no one put a time frame on me but i had started college at 20 uh, i didn't go right out of, out of high school so i was always in this frantic panic and i didn't take the time zach to think about what i'm doing or if what i'm doing will be uh will be helping others hmm. and that came later and it came sporadically right and uh and Right now, you know, as I, I have a job where I'm permitted, in fact, my job requirement is service, right? I mean, this yeah. is what I do. I help others. Uh, I'm a lot happier. Mm. Um, you know, I've got a wife, kid. Everything's great. And my, you know, I'm very lucky. And, uh, and that's really only because uh, I stopped living, worrying about what's happening to me, started giving it to a higher power, my, you know, giving it to God and letting, letting him figure it out in those situations where you right. want to sort of go nuts. And uh, at 20 years old, I think of all the wasted time that yeah. I had thinking I was in control and, or I could be in control. Right. So I would tell a 20-year-old, don't sweat it, right? Think about how 
you can be a person of service going forward and then mold your career to that. I love that. Make sure that what you're doing now matters to someone other than yourself. I think that's so good. So, so much wisdom in that. And I, I pray and I hope that we take that and we apply that to our lives now. But John, thank you so much for your service, what you do, and uh, for taking time to do this podcast. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for amplifying these important issues. And, and uh, let me know if I can help in any other way, my friend. Of course. Thanks, John. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>